Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 366. We got Kwame Christian back and better than ever. He is talking about his compassionate curiosity framework, his new book, and so much more. So you'll learn one, why and how to deal with the inner toddler in high stakes conversations. Two, how being persuadable makes you more persuasive. And three, two key phrases for when you just don't know what to say. So if you want to take a look at the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F366. Now here's Kwame's story. Kwame Christian is a corporate attorney with a passion for using negotiation and the psychology of persuasion to help clients get the best deals possible. His TEDx talk, Finding Confidence in Conflict, was viewed over 24,000 times in 24 hours. And Kwame also hosts the top negotiating podcast in the country, Negotiate Anything. The show has been downloaded over 250,000 times and is a resource for business professionals in over 140 countries. Big thanks to Kwame for spending some time with us and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Here is Kwame. Kwame, welcome back to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Pete, thank you for having me. It's good to be back. Well, I'm thrilled to be talking about your new book, but first I want to get a little bit oriented. And You are a master expert at negotiation. And I understand many of your lessons have come from negotiating with your three-year-old son. Can you give us a tale behind this? Absolutely. And and Pete, you will be following in my footsteps shortly because you have a 10-month-old. Mm-hmm. So I know that you're you're taking notes. <laughs> this, is, this question is for you more than the audience. But um, yeah, it's been really fascinating. Uh, so about me, I'm, I'm an attorney, but my background is in psych. I always wanted to be a psychologist, clinical psychologist. And so when I, when we had Kai, uh, my son, he's three now, um, and for me, I was I was thinking to myself, this is a perfect opportunity to have a human to experiment on. <laughs> so let's play. And so one of the things that I like about Kai when it comes to conflict management and my hostile negotiations with him every morning trying to get him to school is that three-year-olds and toddlers, they are essentially unrefined humans. And you're speaking to the most primitive parts of the human brain when you're trying to break through a toddler's tantrum. And for me as a mediator and an attorney, when I'm negotiating and mediating, I found that a lot of times I'm dealing with a person's inner toddler. (laughs) They dress it up in uh, professional language and professional dress and everything. But when it comes down to it, they're not making decisions with the most evolved part of their brain. They are still responding with their base human responses that come from the limbic system. And once I'm able to recognize that in other people, it, uh, it, it makes it a lot easier and a lot less frustrating. Um, and I take my mornings with Kai as, as practice sessions. I use techniques with him, try it out with him. And then I say, well, I wonder if I could do, <laughs> do something similar with, with the people in these uh, difficult conversations in my profession. And shockingly, it works really effectively. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. And so you say limbic system and raw human. So we're talking just sort of about like emotion, impulse, reflex stuff. Exactly. 
Exactly. Because the, the thing is, when it comes to these difficult conversations, the, the brain structures I like to focus on are the, uh, the amygdala within the limbic system and the prefrontal cortex within the frontal lobe. So the limbic system and the amygdala, that, has, that houses the, uh, the, the base emotional responses, positive and negative emotions, but predominantly negative emotions. And so that's where your fights and flight response is and where the, uh, the stress response is as well. Uh, the thing that leads to the pumping of adrenaline, the elevation of the heart rate, um, deeper breathing and trembling of the voice, all of that is controlled by the limbic system and the stress response. Um, now, the interesting thing about the prefrontal cortex, that's where we have logical reasoning, executive function, and those higher level thinking um, mechanisms in the, in the brain. The interesting thing about that is that that part of the brain doesn't fully develop until you're about 25, hmm. um, early to mid-20s. It, de- it develops fully in females faster than in males. Um, I think it's 22. The difference is 22 to 25. But it takes a while for that part of the brain to be fully developed. So when you are talking to a toddler, you are dealing with somebody who does not have the cognitive capacity to truly rein in the limbic system to really think at that higher level consistently because their prefrontal cortex and frontal lobe isn't fully developed yet. So it's an interesting cognitive challenge when you look at it that way um, versus this is really frustrating. <laughs> Why won't this kid stop crying? But if you think about it and, and put on like a scientist hat and think about it from a psychological perspective, it's, it becomes a fascinating challenge because you recognize which brain structure is active at what time. And then it allows you to walk that baby from irrational to rational. And you're essentially doing the same thing in your difficult conversations because people respond emotionally. And so your goal is to recognize, okay, they're not thinking rationally right now. Let me speak to that emotional side. And then I'm going to start introducing more higher level arguments and speak to the logical part of their brain once I recognize that they've settled down. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Well, and so then you unpack a number of these things in your book. You've been a little bit mysterious with the title, but I understand you're going to speak it aloud on the show here. Yes. So the title of the book, and what's funny is I think your listeners might find out before my listeners. That's how we roll here. It's a scoop. (laughs) That's right. This is a scoop. This is a big deal, people. Big deal. So the name of the book is Nobody Will Play With Me, How to Use the Compassionate Curiosity Framework to Find Confidence in Conflict. Mm-hmm. All right. So you say nobody will play with me. You know, tell us, where's this come from? Yeah. So it's an odd title for a <laughs> negotiation and conflict management book. But with this book, my goal is to not just inundate you with a, a laundry list of psychological techniques and uh, persuasive techniques. I think that's been done and it's already been done well. Um, what I've recognized through meeting my listeners and doing the TED Talk and, and doing these workshops around the country is that the first barrier that people face is emotional within themselves. And what I recognize is that uh, for years I've been giving recipes to people who are afraid to get in the kitchen. They don't care so much about what to do if they're too afraid to do it. And so I looked back on my life and I recognized the same thing was true for me. And so I was a people pleaser. I found it very difficult to stand up for myself in difficult conversations. And when I went through a bit of an introspective process to figure out where that came from, I recognized it that the genesis was an incident on the playground in first grade. So some background on me. Um, I, uh, I'm a first generation Caribbean American and I grew up in a small rural town in Ohio called Tiffin. 
And um, not surprisingly, there was not very much diversity in Tippin. And um, we looked different. And because of our strong accent, we sounded very different. And it was hard to fit in. And so I remember one day in particular on the playground, it was during recess. And I would go to a group of friends and say, hey, can I play with you? And they said no. Mm. And then I went to another group of friends, same thing. And another group, same thing. And then the recess bell rang and I just burst into tears. I felt so lonely. And so I made a vow that day that this would never, ever, ever happen again. People are going to like me, that I'm going to have friends, I'm going to be popular. And so by the end of school, I accomplished my goal. I was one of the most popular kids in school. But what I recognized is that oftentimes our greatest strengths are hiding our greatest weaknesses. And so that incident made me a people pleaser. So when I was confronted with opportunities to engage in conflict, I would turn away because I said, I worked too hard to get all these friends. I am not going to risk it. I'm not going to jeopardize these relationships. And um, so the book chronicles really how I was able to get over this uh, this fear of difficult conversations um, through the, uh, the the fundamentals of cognitive behavioral therapy uh, that I did on my myself. I guess um, I, w- I never made it to be that clinical psychologist that I always wanted to be, but I was my only patient. <laughs> I was my one and only patient. And so I walk the readers through how they can find confidence in conflict, even if they are conflict averse. And then at the end of the book, I share a single powerful technique that you can use in any negotiation from the uh, kitchen table to the boardroom. Well, of course, I can't let that one just go. What is it? What's this powerful technique? Yes. So this technique is called compassionate curiosity. And so it's a generally applicable approach. And like I said, the reason I wanted to do this is because when you inundate somebody with a bunch of different techniques, they might it might make sense logically to them. But when they're in the heat of the moment, they're not going to go through this laundry list of op- options to, to figure out which would be most persuasive in this moment. And so I wanted to create something that could be used on the fly, no matter what the conversation is. If you're at work or you're uh, having a difficult conversation with your wife, you can use it in that situation. So the technique is first, you acknowledge emotions. Second, you get curious with compassion. And third, you engage in joint problem solving. And what makes this unique is the fact that this same framework can be utilized in the external negotiation that we're all familiar with, the conflict that's on the outside with the other person, but also before you engage in the conflict internally, where you acknowledge your own emotions, where you get curious about what you believe, why you believe it, why you want what you want, and then joint problem solving. And so this begs the question, joint problem solving, <laughs> who are the parties here? Because I'm in my own head. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I thought you were starting talking about marijuana. This begs the question, joint problem solving. Like, oh, no. where's it going with this? Where's it going with it? Oh, okay, okay. okay. <laughs> I'm in Ohio, so I mean, there. that's not happening here. Um, maybe in Cali, but not here. <laughs> but um, with, with that internally, what that looks like is is you're negotiating with yourself and you're bringing your heart and mind together to figure out a solution that works for you. Because a lot of times there might be a solution that makes sense economically, 
But then you look in the mirror and you hate yourself for making that deal. You don't feel like you should have conceded. And so a good deal will have something that is, it works for you substantively, it serves your needs, but also it's something that you can live with emotionally. If you make a a deal that makes sense logically, but really breaks you inside, it's not a good deal. And so I want people to think through that thoroughly before they engage in the external negotiation. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Well, could you give us an example of how that might unfold in practice? Absolutely. And so I think about this as, as a mediator. I see this all the time. As a mediator, it gives me an opportunity to put myself in the unique position where I'm right in the middle of a conflict. I have a really good idea of what's going on on one side and really good idea of what's going on on the other side. And they're honest with me. They tell me what's what's going on and what they need. And so sometimes uh, they might get an offer and their attorney might say, this is a really good deal. Given the likelihood of success in litigation, I think we should accept this offer. And now, essentially, that is the logical part of their brain talking. The attorney in this situation represents the logical part of their brain. And um, he or she is saying this works. Financially, this works. Legally, this works. And speaking as an attorney, um, attorneys are very risk averse. So if there's a way to get a quick win um, and avoid a loss, then they'll do that. Settlement is typically the best option. But then if you take a look, uh, a moment and look at the, the party, you can see that it's breaking them up inside. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work. For them. You know, even though it makes sense and they cognitively, logically understand that this is the best deal, they know that if they go home and they take that deal, one month later, six months later, two months later, they'll look in the mirror and lose a little bit of respect for themselves because they feel like they capitulated. And so that's a situation where the person should take a step, think about it, and then push a little bit harder. You know, because if if it's a situation where it won't bankrupt you, you'll you'll survive if you uh, roll that dice and lose in, in litigation. I think with regard, when it comes down to the way that you look at yourself and your level of self-respect, you don't want to capitulate when it's a situation where you care about it or it means more to you than just the money and the, the legal exposure. Mm-hmm. Intriguing. Okay. So then you're sort of highlighting the different areas there. And the curiosity then is when you're kind of asking those questions in terms of what's underneath it, what's behind it, and sort of what's going on deep down there. So that's intriguing. And then I guess if you're the mediator there, you're going to need to come about the understanding of where the other person's coming from as well, so that you can find a new deal that is workable for everyone. Exactly, exactly. And, and, you know, for me as a mediator, it's tough to skirt that line. If there's an attorney representing the party, then I, I would kind of step back and let those two have the discussion. But oftentimes when the party is unrepresented and they're trying to to handle it themselves, I, I have them think through it. So even if they say, yes, I'll test it. So I say to them, oh, okay, now I understand that this is a deal that makes sense for you and you're, you're thinking about accepting this deal. But let me ask you a question. Let me think of, let me have you think about it from this angle. Now, if you take this home to your spouse and you let your spouse know about the outcome, what would they think about it? How would they feel? Okay, why would they feel that way? Now, after you get that reaction from their spouse, now imagine if the spouse, they say, oh, the spouse would be really upset. They would be frustrated. They'd feel like I gave away the farm. And then I said, okay, after you get that response from your spouse, how would you feel about that deal six months from now? Would you feel good about yourself? And then they say, no, I wouldn't feel good about myself at all. And um, then I say, well, do you think this is a good deal still? And they would say, no. 
And so then I say, all right, so let's consider your financial situation, what you're looking for, your interests and um, the legal exposure we're dealing with. Um, what is a counter proposal that would work for you? And they'll come back with something a little bit more aggressive. Um, and, and that jives with their with um, what's happening inside of them, because one of the things we need to recognize is that emotions are valid. So we can't just try to turn ourselves into automatons and, and just make cold, callous calculations. That's simply not the way we operate. Those emotions are going to be there festering under the surface, whether we want them to or not. So I say when it comes to the decision making process before and during the conversation, we need to constantly have that internal negotiation to make sure that the outcomes uh, or the solutions that we uh, consider and propose are really in line with our uh, substantive and emotional uh, interests. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's good stuff. And so that's in the lawyer world. I mean, are there other instances in the course of just sort of natural thinking, decision making, sort of life planning and executing where you see some real common mismatches between the logical and the emotional? Absolutely. You see it at home all the time, all the time. So it might be a situation where you're trying to decide where to go, where to live. You and your spouse might be deciding where to live. So you have an option of living in a densely populated urban area. You're in Chicago. So let's say Chicago. That's right. um, uh, or you could move out to the suburbs and give yourself a little bit more space, uh, reduce stress, reduce uh, workload, et cetera, et cetera. And so there are going to be a number of competing interests. So if you were somebody who grew up in Chicago and maybe it was a, you grew up in a rougher side of Chicago, maybe you say that upbringing made me tough. It made me strong, and I learned a lot. Um, I didn't. I didn't just have book smarts, but I had street smarts. So I would prefer, because of that, I want to raise my child in a more of a densely populated area. And so then you have to have a serious conversation to see within yourself <laughs> before you have uh, the conversation with your spouse to make the decision and really dig deeply into it. Because sometimes the emotions are, are legitimate and they would be long lasting. But sometimes you recognize within yourself, oh, now I see why I feel this way. It's not legitimate. It's purely emotional in a way where I'm, I'm, I'm willing to let it go. I, I was, for instance, I was talking to one of my friends. Um, I, I did an episode where we had a sparring session, like a mock negotiation. And um, it was me uh, and uh, my guest. I was playing the role of a, a parent and she was trying to, she was my spouse and she was trying to convince me not to spank the children. And I said, well, you know, I'm a Caribbean American. I was spanked and I'm tough. My family was spanked and they, they did really well. So I, I want to continue the tradition. And my friend told me that after he listened to that episode, it hit him that the only reason he wanted to spank his kids was because his family is from Africa and his whole family was spanked growing up. That, that was just the tradition. Um, but then as an academic, when he looked back and made that determination for himself, looking at the re literature, he realized it wasn't something that he wanted to do. I'm not saying that as an indictment of spanking at all. Um, I'm just saying that as an example of how the introspective process can lead to some unexpected results. And once you recognize the genesis of some of your emotional stances, um, then it leads you to question it. And it could lead to the opposite. You could say, oh, this is legitimate. This isn't going to go away. I need to actually take this into consideration in the, in the decision-making process. But what I'm finding, and the reason I, that I want to include this in the book is because I found that most people don't think through things 
thoroughly before they engage in the difficult conversations. And so they have this conflict or this negotiation and they are they're discussing it feverishly um, when in reality they don't have a good understanding of what they really want or why. And that leads to really poor outcomes a lot of times in these difficult conversations. Mm-hmm. And what I love about the spanking example is that it really does have some emotion as well as data. And I haven't looked at all the data on spanking in great detail, but I've browsed a couple studies and I would have a hard time, I think myself, just doing it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Even, like if the research showed that spanking was like the best means of making your child a success, I would be like, okay, this is kind of hard for me to do, but I guess I'll suck it up. Yeah, but I think it packs an emotional charge. And we talk about your steps there in terms of, you know, one, acknowledging the emotions. I think if you go there, then it totally makes sense how that gets you onto sort of a level ground for having the conversation. Because if someone is thinking, you know what, my family spanked me and they were spanked and we are all great. And then someone, you know, comes hard charging. We'll take a look at these seven peer reviewed studies and the outcomes associated with children who were spanked. It's just like, yeah, well, you know, that's just a bunch of academic mumbo jumbo. I mean, you know, you know, how applicable is that to the real world? Right. So I think you sort of instantly probably catch some resistance as opposed to when you sort of acknowledge the emotions and have that curiosity associated with where it comes from, then it's like, you know what? Yeah, that is kind of interesting, you know? And I guess that is where it comes from and, and how we operate. But, you know, a lot of families didn't do that and they worked out fine. So I guess I guess we got a choice to make here. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's really cool how if you take the time to go there, you'll save time, you know, talking to your blue in the face about all your awesome data. Exactly. And and here's the thing, too. What studies have found is that people come to decisions, come to conclusions and opinions with their emotions first, and then subsequently justify that with logic. And so it's a reverse process, because typically we think that we are well-reasoned people, and we come to these conclusions because of our our reasoning. But it's the opposite way. So, for example, let's let's stick on the, the spanking example, because for me, if I were having that conversation with my wife and I didn't prepare at all and I'd say, no, I want to spank. And then she says, here are these peer reviewed um, uh, studies. Um, I would be ill equipped to have that conversation because. I didn't realize before the conversation that the singular reason why I wanted to spank was because of my upbringing. That's it. But the thing is, as the conversation went, if I would have not taken the time to confront that beforehand, I would have said, well, all of my family is successful. That is an, that's an excuse, really. That's a rationalization that came after I already came to that conclusion. Mm, yeah. And so it makes it better for you to operate in these conversations because one of the keys to being persuasive is being persuadable. And in those conversations, if you are willing to come to terms with the fact that, oh, I might be wrong and maybe the best thing for me, the other person in the situation as a whole is for me to adjust my position, then that puts you in a better position to persuade this person in another situation, too. And and one of the things I mentioned in the book is I want you to consider this like relationship chess. And so it's not just a short term, it's not just a short term situation where I'm trying to be persuasive in this particular conversation and get this win. It's over the lifetime of this relationship, how can I put myself in the best position to be as persuasive as possible and maximize value 
for me and the other person. And when you think about it that way, it, it broadens your perspective and you can see how saying coming to terms before the negotiation that, oh, I might actually <laughs> I might actually be wrong. That's beneficial in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. That's so much good stuff. Thank you. And it resonates. It's funny when you talk about the emotion and then the rationalization. It's interesting over the last few days, this just happened to me. So I've taken a fancy lately to the website wirecutter.com if you've ever been there. Ah, yes. What I just love is how, you know, I tend to research products super thoroughly myself on Amazon. And then I like it that they do that and then take it all the further in terms of, well, we got the top 10 rated things. Then we played with them all for hours and hours and here are our conclusions. And so I just sort of bumped into them talking about a multi-bit ratcheting screwdriver and they just sort of sang its praises in such great detail and how it was vastly superior to all these other multi-bit ratcheting screwdrivers. <laughs> and even though I already have a screwdriver set, I just wanted it, you know, partially just because I love excellence and the way they spoke of it was so glowing as it being vastly superior to the others and how ratcheting has its advantages. I spent like three or four days, not like all day, but, you know, in idle moments, <laughs> just sort of thinking about like, under what circumstances would I really need ratcheting in a screwdriver? And then just today I came to the thought, well, you know what, I've got these blinds that I've been kind of dragging my feet on putting up. And part of it's because it's unpleasant to kind of shove your hand in those weird, awkward corners where there's like furniture and stuff in the way. And then you keep slipping out of it and then getting re back into the screw Versus if I had a ratcheting capability, then that would make it so much easier and remove my resistance and we could get these things up and it could very well save me time if there's just one screw that I don't strip and have to take a trip to the store. That time savings is going to pay for itself. And I just bought it today. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> I did not need to spend $26 when I have the screw driving capability in my life, <laughs> but I had a desire and then I found a reason. And I don't regret it, but I do see what's happened to me here. And I can be honest and humble about it. This is brilliant. This is a great example. And I, I like your honesty, first of all, uh, with how you came to the decision, because you admitted it, it was an emotional decision. And then you worked hard to find a way to legitimize that decision. And so let's do a little role play. Um, uh, I'm your wife. Now we're married. I am gorgeous. No. Pete, <laughs> you sure congratulations. Um, <laughs> and you want to spank our kids. <laughs> so, so let's say my goal here is to stop you from buying this thing. And so now thinking about it on the external side, we can see how the compassionate curiosity framework is beneficial. Because if I, as your wife, just focus on the fact, the truth, um, the reality, the logical conclusion that we do not need this, She's speaking to the wrong part of the brain because it's not the logical part of the brain that made that decision. And that's why when it comes to sequencing the compassionate curiosity framework, it goes from acknowledge emotions to compassionate curiosity to joint problem solving. Because we recognize that you need to start with the emotions first. And once the emotional side is addressed, then we can move to curiosity with regard to the substance of it and, and digging deeply into your motivations and, and why you believe you need it. And then we can work together to come up with a solution. But we don't start talking about solutions first because that talks about logic and practicality and things like that. And you're not ready for that. We need to address 
that emotion, which in this case is actually positive, that desire. And um, I, I'm seeing a trend here because you said I, I, you, you admire excellence. The name of your podcast is how to be <laughs> awesome at your job. And so for me as your wife, I would say, all right, I understand that you have a need for higher level things and, and um, the best things in life. And so maybe what I would try to do is give you that same emotional satisfaction in another way that still protects us from that expense, but still at the same time gives you that that validation that you need to find a win-win in that case. I'd like you're kind of working with the same emotional pathway. You might kind of work with painting a picture of how there is excellence in using simple tools that you've already got and paint a picture of how play some country music and take your sweet time using the tools you have and enjoy doing an excellent job with what you've got. And that in its own way is a form of excellence with fiscal responsibility and resourcefulness, you know, mm-hmm. make using what you got because you're so smart, <laughs> you know, at doing that and being creative. You're like MacGyver. <laughs> and so I dig that. And I think that's intriguing too. If you think about, boy, all the little decisions we make all the time with regard to our logic versus our animalistic or limbic desires. I'm thinking about, it's like, I want pizza, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. I want that delicious pizza. And so you've got that desire. And then, but you realize, well, that pizza probably has twice as many calories as I really need to be, you know, satisfied and nourished. And I would like to drop some pounds. And so there you have it. Classic. Okay. Logically, eating that pizza does not help me <laughs> attain my goals. You know, but emotionally, I want it. So mm-hmm. right then and there, it seems like we can apply this framework to sort of talk yourself off the pizza ledge. How would that play out? Exactly. And and it's fascinating because like, you're spot on. The the compassionate curiosity framework, in especially internally, can be used in every single situation because we're constantly making decisions. And what they found is the vast majority of our decisions happen automatically. And so in this situation, um, you might just find yourself with a pizza and you're done with the pizza. And now you've reached a level of sanity that came with your uh, <laughs> with uh, your satisfaction. It's like, oh, why? how did I get this pizza? Well, you made that decision automatically, emotionally. Mm-hmm. And so walking you through that, uh, that framework, what it could be is this. So, uh, and I'll kind of put myself on the spot too. So it might be a Friday night. And then I say, all right, I'm getting pizza. That's the conclusion <laughs> I've come up with. Then I stop and I say, okay, well, okay, step one, acknowledge emotions. What is it? Well, I'm, I'm happy. I'm with my family. I feel good. Um, that's, that's what I'm feeling right now. That's, that is my emotion. Okay, well, why do you feel that way? Well, I've been, I remember growing up watching TJIF with my family <laughs> and it feels so good. And, and that's why at this moment on Friday evening, I feel that good. Okay, so now where does pizza come in? Well, every Friday, I remember sitting down and we, my family would order AJ's pizza and we would eat this, eat this pizza. Okay. So what does your heart and what does your heart really want? Your heart wants connection with your family and to enjoy that, that warmth and, and accepting, caring feeling that comes with spending time with the family. But substantively, what does your body need right now? Because you and your wife set a goal uh, to hit a certain um, 
body fat percentage uh, by the end of the month. And this is antithetical to those goals. So is there another way we can get that same feeling, that same emotional feeling by doing something else? And then you say, you know what, maybe what we can do together as a family instead of eating pizza is sitting down, is coming up with a recipe and as a family creating a healthy dish and then sharing that together. Mm-hmm. There you go. Certainly. And so that's sort of based on a warm family connection kind of emotional vibe. I'm wondering if, if the desire is even a little bit more simple. It's like, because pizza is delicious and it's, <laughs> it's greasy and crunchy and chewy and flavorful all at the same time. That is what I long to have in this moment. Yeah. And I think a lot of times when uh, we feel emotions as a Western society, we've gotten into that almost societal habit of, of addressing that emotion with food. If I'm sad, I'm going to eat comfort food. <laughs> if I'm happy, I'm going to eat comfort food. Um, if I'm bored, uh, I guess I could eat something too. Um, when it comes to the habit structure, when you think about Charles Duhigg's book, The, uh, the Power of Habit, the anatomy of a habit is uh, trigger, behavior, and reward. And what's funny is with uh, food especially, there are multiple triggers that could be opposing triggers. Happiness and sadness both lead, <laughs> both could lead to pizza in the same way. Like you said, it might not even be something as elevated as, mm-hmm. oh, warmth and family time. That's great. It might just be a trigger um, uh, or a deeply ingrained habit. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Well, boy, there's many things I wanted to get into, but <laughs> we're already having so much fun with so much time. All right. Let's talk about, you know, the fear and confidence dimension associated with going into some conversations with folks like you sense that there's going to be you know a conflict a difference of opinion on a matter and so you're feeling fearful what do you suggest for tackling that fear and boosting the confidence you've got sort of one useful tool to engage in the conversation but to sort of get your mindset right before you step in how do you recommend we do that so i'll answer it two ways Um, Right before you step in, what I would do is I would focus on your why. What is the purpose of the conversation? And um, when you think about the the system of roots beneath a tree, uh, sometimes, depending on the tree, uh, the root system can go down 20 feet into the ground and spread out 40 feet away from the, the trunk of the tree. And that's why it is so well rooted. It's not moving. And so we have to think about our reasoning, our purpose in the same way. And so if fear is something that you struggle with, you need to find a reason for the conversation. Um, so an example is I was coaching an, uh, an executive at a nonprofit one time, and she was struggling to make the difficult asks when it came to um, funding for the nonprofit. And she said, I just don't feel comfortable in these conversations. I don't feel like asking. I don't, I feel like I'm annoying people. And I said, um, all right, can you tell me about why you do this? And she talked about the mission and how important it was to her. And I said, can you think of one person, one child that you've helped that stands out to you? And she said, yeah, I can think of one. Um, His name's Mark. Um, And he had this story and she told me the story. I said, great. Well, here's what I want you to do. Uh, Before you make any of these fundraising calls, I want you to take a picture of Mark and I want you to look at it and remember the impact that your mission had on his life, his life and his family's life. And then I want you to make that call. And so after she did that, she was able to push harder without that fear or with let me say that. Let me say it this way. Push harder without letting the fear get in her way. Mm hmm. 
the reality is in a lot of these situations that fear and anxiety, that feeling is still going to be there. But it's not about, again, muting these emotions and putting them away because that's often unrealistic. What it's really about is finding unique ways to still accomplish what we need to accomplish in spite of those fears. And so in the middle of if you have a conversation coming up right now, Um, that's going to be one of the keys. And now going forward, what I would suggest doing is finding unique ways to put yourself in positions of difficult conversations because you need to engage in what I call rejection therapy. That that was a popular TED Talk thing by the same title or 100 Days of Rejection was the TED Talk. Essentially, it's um, exposure therapy, how how people get over um, phobias. And so you slightly expose yourself to a difficult conversation, like a small one. And then the next day you do another one. You find these opportunities. And then as you start to do that, you're going to find yourself becoming a little bit more comfortable in the difficult conversations. And the last one is um, reconceptualizing your uh, your opinion on the uh, the, uh, fear that you're feeling. So essentially, this is the cognitive reappraisal thing. So what you're doing is you are feeling this physical sensation of fear. So maybe for you, it's heart rate and perspiration. That's what what it is for you. That's how you know you're afraid. Well, over time, what you want to start doing is attaching that physical um, uh, response to another um, positive emotion. So for me, um, even though now with these workshops, um, I travel the country doing the negotiation and conflict management trainings. Um, the reality is I've been a, terrified of public speaking, just absolutely terrified. And so to this day, when I speak in public, I still have that fear response. But with the through the process of cognitive reappraisal, I feel the exact same thing, but I label it as excitement. I see this as an opportunity. And so now I'm going to move toward it. Mm-hmm. So psychologically, we're always thinking about things in terms of approach or avoid. And most likely with the fear and anxiety that people feel with difficult conversations, they are they're avoiding the difficult conversations. So by figuring out your why in that specific conversation and then recognizing conflict as an opportunity, um, those two things in conjunction will make it more likely for you to approach the conversation with more confidence. Oh, excellent. Thank you. Well, now I want to get your take on... When it comes to the actual word choice that you're using, do you have any favorite, you know, scripts or phrases or things you find yourself saying again and again that are, are just super handy tools in your back pocket? Absolutely. And it's funny you say that because one of the things that um, my listeners said was an issue was that sometimes in the conversations, they don't know what to say. <laughs> I just don't know what to say. Can you help me there? Mm-hmm. And so what I recognize is that a lot of times when you don't know what to say, it's a signal that you probably shouldn't be saying something. You shouldn't be saying anything. You should be asking a question because you don't know what to say because you don't know enough. And so your goal at that moment is to learn something. And so in those moments, what I do is I ask questions. So my favorite kinds of questions start with what or how. Um, These are open-ended questions um, that are designed to solicit um, information and get them talking. Um, I also like to use tell me more about 
blank or help me to understand blank. Those two open-ended statements are are things that I I go to a lot of times when I just simply don't know what to say. They're really simple and they get the other person talking, which gives you more information. And as we know, knowledge is power and it gives you more power and confidence in the negotiation. It also gives you time to regroup (laughs) because while while they're talking, you're listening, but you're also gathering yourself and figuring out what's next. And so I would say, the the two go-to phrases that I use would be, tell me more about this, blah, 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 or um, help me to understand this. Oh, lovely. Thank you. Well, tell me, Kwame, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Absolutely. Well, yes, the book um, this week is going to be on sale for 99 cents um, just for this week. Uh, so if if you're interested in getting the book and figuring out conflict-wise uh, what you can do better and how you can get more confident, this would be the, the week to do it. Oh, very cool. All right. Got it. And now can you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Yes. Um, there's a difference between um, what people often think about negotiation and what negotiation really is. Um, so my quote is, um, negotiation is not the art of deal making. It's the art of deal discovery. You're going together to come and have a conversation to see if a deal exists, not try to force one if it doesn't. Mm, cool. Thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Yes, I will go to Stanley Milgram's experiment on authority. This is a classic psychological experiment. Back in the good old days, um, before the ethics. You know, ethics. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could spank your kids and no one would judge you for it. <laughs> exactly. It was the wild, wild west. Yeah. It was terrible. But we learned a lot from it. We learned a lot from the study. Um, so for those of you who don't know, um, with the Milgram experiment, it was on a obedience to authority. And so he had uh, somebody come in to a laboratory um, and what the person saw was this contraption that had different levels of voltage assigned to these switches. And then you had a man in a lab coat looking very authoritative and then a person on the other side of a, a curtain. And so you were the you were to ask the person questions. If they got it wrong, then you shocked them. And so the level of shock was just increasing to dangerous levels. I think it was a full 63 percent of the people who went through that study um, took it all the way to the end um, where they thought the person was actually dead. And so this is terrifying. So you just come into a lab and some man in a lab coat says, shock this person. And you're hearing the voice or what you think is a person suffering. It was really a tape recorder. But 63 percent went all the way and shocked this person to the point where he stopped responding and they kept shocking. And so that, um, no pun intended, is shocking. Oh, but it, it tells you just how how powerful deference to authority is when it comes to persuasion. And so that's why confidence for me is one of those mo- the the thing that I focused on most in this uh, in this book, how you can get confidence because the simple act of carrying yourself with confidence is by itself persuasive. And so if you can carry yourself in a way that lets people know that you are an authority, somebody to be respected, um, they are going to respond in kind. And so even if you don't know any a substantive negotiation technique, if you were to just increase your ability to, to demonstrate confidence and be confident in yourself, it's going to increase your negotiation outcomes. Mm, thank you. And how about a favorite book? 
Um, shameless plug. I guess it would have to be my book right now since I'm promoting it. Um, but the I think the best negotiation book uh, on the market right now is uh, Never Split the Difference by Chris Boss. That keeps coming up. We had him on the show. Gus was awesome. The book was awesome. Why do you love it? I love it because it's so practical. Um, he took it from the ivory tower and brought it to the real world. And I love the the fact that when I read books written by um, folks from the CIA, FBI, mm-hmm. all everything is just military grade um, practicality. So it's if it doesn't work in the field, then they don't use it. And so everything that we learn from him is readily applicable. And I saw I remember in some of my negotiations as um, with opposing counsel um, representing my clients, I decided, no, there's, there's no way. It can't be that easy. It can't work. <laughs> Just being shocked. Just being shocked. And and I think if I'm going to get really nerdy with the reason why I like it, it would be this. Um, he was able to blend a, an approach that is assertive. Um, because when I have it, when I had him on the show, I said aggressive. He said, I prefer the term assertive. So I'll mm-hmm. respect that. Um, assertive, but friendly. And so one of the critiques of the collaborative negotiation model is that it's a little bit too fluffy. Mm-hmm. Like in, in the real world, if you go against a buzzsaw, you'll just get destroyed. And so um, with uh, Chris's <laughs> approach to negotiation, um, he, he could take everything you have and make you like him through the process. It's brilliant. Yeah. And so we said we'd work with clients. You're like, it can't be this simple. You know, what in particular were you doing that you found to be effective, but surprisingly simple? Yeah. So I remember with a lot of these negotiations, the simple response of, how am I supposed to do that? Yeah. Adjusting your position at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just them to negotiate against themselves mm-hmm. is shockingly powerful. If you, if you can do it with at the proper affect where you're friendly um, and not aggressive and not threatening, um, it, it, it's powerful because there is an assumption that every time somebody counters your proposal or anytime there is resistance, you need to then adjust your position. But what he showed is that, no, you don't. You can, <laughs> you can keep on implementing the same technique over and over and over again, and then eventually they'll relent. And so you're really testing their resilience throughout the conversation. What amount of what they're doing is bluster? Are you just saying you can't do that? Or are you hoping that I will just uh, believe that? And then if you just challenge it and just keep challenging and challenging it, it's incredible to see, even in these these incredibly um, positional high stakes negotiations, like with me and opposing counsel or me uh, as sitting as the mediator, it's incredible to see how effective that is when it comes to these difficult conversations. Yeah, well, let's hear how you'd say, how am I supposed to do that? So just like that, (laughs) that's the crazy part about it, Pete. Uh, I always thought it would be a little bit more warm and fun, like Kwame. How am I supposed to do that? (laughs) I would say it like this. If I'm talking to opposing counsel, I would say, well, first of all, Pete, I I, I definitely understand where you're coming from, but I represent a, a client here. So how am I supposed to do that? His interests are this, that, and the other. How, how am I supposed to accept that? All right. And then silence. (laughs) And then they start thinking, hmm, that's a good point. How is he? (laughs) And it's it's crazy. Yeah. Let me figure that out for you. (laughs) Right. I'm like, all right, well, you get back to me. I'll be right here. All right. How about a favorite tool? 
tool. And when we're talking about tools, I would say, honestly, the the compassionate curiosity framework, Um, because I I spend a lot of time trying to figure out and give give voice to the the technique that I use naturally. And and this is what it is. I like the flexibility of it. I like the fact that um, when I am uh, feeling that fight, flight or freeze, I have a go-to that I can I can utilize if I'm not cognitively at my best. Because the thing is, it happens to everybody. We all get flustered. We all find ourselves in a difficult conversation and we get heated and we feel our amygdala starting to take over and we feel the rush of adrenaline going through and we say, oh no, now I'm triggered. I can't think straight. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? I know I can implement that technique in every single situation I find myself in. And um, I, I use it as my North Star. I can always use it to gather myself. So whenever I teach, whether it's a procurement people or people in a leadership class or other attorneys, the compassionate curiosity framework is the basis. And then upon that base, we put on those other persuasive techniques. But in in every situation, that's going to be my foundation. Mm-hmm. And tell me, is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks as you're teaching this stuff? I think it's the recognition of the importance of psychology. Um, first of all, to understand ourselves and what we're feeling in order to normalize the situation so we know we're not weird or, or broken or damaged. Um, and then also when we extrapolate those uh, those psychological principles to the other side, it helps you to recognize, wow, this is why I'm having so much trouble in these conversations because I'm speaking to their logical side when it's really their emotional side engaged. And I think the point that uh, really resonates with people is I say that it doesn't matter how good the point, how good of a point you make if they're, if they're not in a cognitive state where they can accept it, Mm -hmm. where they can actually understand it. So just slow down and hold those points until they're ready. And um, I think the the biggest takeaway for people is is patience. It's okay to have these conversations about issues that are emotional in the business world, um, because I think a lot of times people think it's taboo. And so they just go straight to substance, um, but they're missing out on a lot of value when it comes to um, their, their ability to persuade by overlooking the emotional aspect. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them? Check out the uh, Negotiate Anything podcast. Uh, that would be an easy one. I'm assuming your podcast listeners like listening to podcasts. So that'll be a good start. And then um, connect with me on LinkedIn as well. Mm-hmm. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Call to action this week, this time is going to be, it'll be two things. First, check out the book on Amazon. Um, and second, take the opportunity to engage in these difficult conversations. Because the way I look at it, the best things in our life lie on the other side of a difficult conversation. Whether it's personal or professional, there is going to be a difficult conversation or a difficult uh, person standing in our way. And so we need to move toward these conflicts, not move away from them. Because when you think about it opportunistically, there is a benefit to these conversations. You just need to be creative and find it. And then once you do, utilize the compassionate curiosity framework to get the most out of it. Beautiful. Well, Kwame, this has been a ton of fun. I wish you tons of luck with the book and the podcast and all the stuff you're doing. Thank you. Likewise. And thanks for having me back on, Pete. I appreciate it. I really love what Kwame had to say about the inner toddler. That just gets me thinking all the more in terms of recognizing in myself and in other people I'm chatting with, wait a minute, am I hearing an emotional argument or response? Am I talking to a toddler right now? Or am I hearing a logical, rational 
response. And it's so eye-opening in how I think I've been making the wrong choice in terms of responding fairly often in terms of if I'm in a logical mode and the other person's in an emotional mode or vice versa, and offering stuff that they're just not ready to receive. So that's been very helpful to sort of wait a tick. Hmm. What I'm hearing is really just a bunch of anger masquerading in some fancy words. So let's deal with the emotional piece rather than go straight for intellectually dismantling, you know, the argument that they may not be perfectly logical. So very helpful to just note, hey, we're multifaceted as complex human creatures and to respond appropriately in a language they're going to appreciate and recognize when they're in that right zone. So cool stuff. Again, you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the links to items we've referenced. It's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F366. And more cool stuff to come. Our next guest, if you push subscribe, you'll hear from her and never miss an episode. It is Allison Shapira. She is talking about how to speak with impact, the voice that you use, and how different elements of your voice affect people in different ways. Until next time, and peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.